Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. As we continue through the Gospel of Luke this morning, you know, many people are fascinated with their family tree. And they go to sites such as Ancestry.com or 23andMe where you can send in your DNA sample and you can find out if you're related to a famous person of history. Um, I'm a distant relative of Edgar Allan Poe on my dad's mother's side of the family, so that may explain a lot of things about me if you know anything about Edgar Allan Poe. On my grandmother's, on my mother's side, my grandmother's maiden name was Jackson. And so we're related to Andrew Jackson and Stonewall Jackson is in our family. Uh, My son Aiden did some family tree research last fall, and one day he texted me and said, Dad, did you know that Thomas Jefferson is your second cousin seven times removed? Whatever that means. So somehow related to Thomas Jefferson. A big thing in my family, too, was uh, we were related to the country and western singer, Tennessee Ernie Ford. And so uh, those are the famous people in my family tree. Now, my last name's Cole, and Cole comes from the southwest part of England, Cornwall to be exact, and our family crest is the bull. Now, in the early AD 200s, it was legend that many of the Coles were kings. That's where you get the song, Old King Cole was a merry old soul, and a merry old soul was he. He asked for his pipe, and he asked for his, i got to read the rest of this. <laughs> asked for his bowl, and he called for his fiddler's three. So when I was a basketball player, they used to call me Old King Cole sometimes. I don't know why. They called me Coleslaw, too, which I didn't appreciate too much. That was, that was my nickname on the back of my, my basketball jersey was Coleslaw. So, um, but in my grandparents' house, there's the Cole family crest, and it's got... The bull, the black bull that represents power and, and majesty and the coat of arms. And, and oftentimes, if you, if you look at your ancient coat of arms or some of you are interested in your family tree, many families had a motto, and the motto was written in Latin. And since um, we were part of the kings of, of England, supposedly, our family motto, the Cole family motto, was worship God, obey the king. It's a pretty good family motto. Worship God, obey the king, back in in ancient England. And so some of you probably have very interesting family tree details. If we were to sit here and talk about who all we're related to, we could have some interesting stories about distant relatives. And so we come to this portion in Luke where we're tempted to skip it over, the genealogy of Jesus. Who cares who's the father of who and who begat who? This is a bunch of names, and I don't really care about this. And so it's in the Bible. Matthew has a genealogy, just like Luke has a genealogy. They're a little bit different, and we'll talk about that here in a moment. But why is this genealogy here? I'm not going to read all the names, but let's just read, starting in Luke chapter 3. Actually, I want to start in verse 22, what we looked at last week. The voice of the Father at Jesus' baptism. A voice came from heaven. This is the very last part of verse 22, because this is all tied together. You are my beloved Son. 
with you I'm well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Mathot. You go down through the genealogy, and so, for example, you see some famous names there in verse 31. Uh, you see the son of David, King David. In verse 32, you see Boaz, that's Ruth's husband. Uh, you go there in verse uh, 33, the very last, you see Judah. Then in verse 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, the son of Terah. Uh, you look at verse 36, you see Noah in there. Uh, verse 37, you see Methuselah, the oldest man that ever lived. And then, very interestingly, in verse 38, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. goes all the way back to Adam who Luke calls the Son of God. Now, remember last week at Jesus' baptism when God said audibly, this is my beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. That was definitely a proclamation about Jesus' deity. He is God. He's the beloved, unique, one-of-a-kind Son. It's the deity of Christ. But right here on the heels of this amazing announcement from the Father... Luke gives us this detailed list of names. And you have to say, well, why are these names here? And why does he break up the baptism with going into the wilderness, which we're going to look at next week? The list of names is there for a purpose, structurally, theologically. It's to show us that not only is Jesus fully God, the beloved Son with whom the Father is pleased, but he's also fully human. He comes from human ancestry. Jesus has a family tree. There are people all the way going back to Adam that Jesus can trace his lineage to, just like you can trace your lineage to. And so in the baptism, we see the deity of Christ. In the genealogy, we see the humanity of Christ. Jesus was fully human, but he was without sin. So Hebrews 4.15, we do not have a high priest who's unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. So Jesus was sinless. He was human. Hebrews 2.17, therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. He had to be made like us in every way. So Jesus was born of a virgin through Mary and the Holy Spirit, but Jesus does have a family tree that traces all the way, Luke traces it all the way back to Adam. Now, it's interesting. What does he say about Joseph there at the very beginning? Joseph was the supposed father of Jesus. Now, why does Luke put the supposed father? Maybe your translation has supposedly. Well, is Joseph really Jesus' father? Well, he's Jesus' earthly father, but he's not really Jesus' father because Jesus was conceived of the Holy Spirit. So Jesus is God's son, technically not Joseph's son. So I think that's why Luke kind of puts it in there to remind us that Jesus was conceived of a, of a virgin. But it's very interesting when you look at this genealogy. Here's the shocking thing about it. All of the flagrant sinners who show up in Jesus' family tree. People that made some major 
mistakes in their lives. Now, some of these names are more famous than others. And every single one of them were guilty sinners, and they all died physically. Think all the way back to Adam. What did Adam do? Adam sinned in the garden, trespassed God's law. Abraham lied twice and tried to get a surrogate to have a child with Hagar, the slave girl. Jacob was a deceiver. He tricked his brother Esau twice and his uncle Laban. Judah sold his brother into slavery and slept with prostitutes. And I don't need to tell you what King David was famous for, probably the most egregious, adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband Uriah murdered. So some of the greatest names in the Old Testament were major sinners. And you may be shocked and think, well, how come Jesus' family tree has sinners? It gives us great hope. Here's the great hope. If some of the greatest names in the Old Testament were major sinners, that gives hope for us who are major sinners, that we can be saved by grace and that Jesus came born of a woman, born in the flesh, born of a virgin so that you and I could be saved. Now, I could go through this genealogy and give you the background of every name here and we'd be here for a long time and it would be really boring. So how do you, how do you preach a genealogy? How do you pre preach a bunch of names? What I'm going to do for this morning is I'm going to talk about what this genealogy teaches us about God's overall plan of salvation. Okay, so one of, the, one of the building blocks, one of the key ways to understand the Bible is what is called promise fulfillment. Promise fulfillment. This is one of the key ways you understand the entire storyline of the Bible. What do I mean by promise fulfillment? Here's what I mean. In the Old Testament... God gave numerous promises to these people. Now, they were types and they were shadows. They weren't ultimately fulfilled. And so when Jesus came on the scene of history, he fulfilled those promises given in the Old Testament. And so these promises go all the way back to Adam, and they trace all the way through Jesus' family line up into Jesus. So we're not going to look at every single name here, but we're going to look at some of the famous ones. We're going to go through these list of sinners, humans, people that physically died, and find out what promise did God make to them. So here's where we're going today. What promise did God make to them? How did Jesus fulfill that promise? And then what does that mean for us today? So three things. What was made to the person in the Old Testament? How did Jesus fulfill that? And what does it mean for us today being part of this big story? What I want you to understand is you're part of a big story of the Bible that goes all the way back from Genesis to Revelation and everything in between, and you're part of this huge story. So let's go all the way back to Adam because that's where Luke takes us to the very end of the genealogy. Adam who was called the Son of God. Now, why was Adam called the Son of God? Because he was created by God. He was the first human. He was created in God's image. And what did God do when he created Adam? He put him in the Garden of Eden to sit around and twiddle his thumbs in the garden. Now, what was he supposed to do? Genesis 2.15 tells us, this is before sin came into the world, by the way. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. So I want you to picture Eden as God's temple. It's a prototype of where God dwelt. And Adam is the king. 
of God's kingdom. So God places Adam as his king in the Garden of Eden to work it, to tend it, and ultimately Adam's responsibility was to extend God's glory to the end of the earth so that Eden would be ultimately heaven on earth. He was to be, multi- he was to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth with God's glory. And so as a king in Eden, Adam, if he lived a perfect life of obedience to God, he would earn eternal life. Adam would earn eternal life if he was obedient to what God called him to do. So Eden was God's temple. It was God's dwelling place. And what, was, what were the two symbols in the Garden of Eden? You had two trees, right? What was the first tree? The first tree was the tree of life. This was a symbol to show that if Adam could obey God perfectly, he would be rewarded with eternal life. And we know that the tree of life shows up in the book of Revelation. So the tree of life is a symbol of eternal life that Adam could have earned for himself if he had been obedient to God. Okay? What's the other tree? It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was there to show Adam that if he disobeyed God, there would be punishment. So, God really only gave Adam one commandment. One commandment, not ten, one. What was the commandment? Genesis 2, 16 through 17. The Lord God commanded the man, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. That's freedom, you should, every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat it. For in the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. Pretty simple, right? God says to Adam, you have ultimate freedom of all these trees, but there's one you can't eat of. If you eat of this tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. If you continue to obey me perpetually, you'll be rewarded with eternal life, the tree of life. But if you eat of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you will die. And what do we know Adam did? He ate the fruit. I don't know if it was an apple, a pear, or strawberry, or pineapple. I don't know what it was. It was the fruit. He ate it. He sinned. And what did Adam's sin do for all of us? Well, it plunged every single person who's ever lived into spiritual death. Paul tells us in Romans 5.12, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, that's Adam, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Through Adam's one sin, every single one of us is born spiritually dead and going to physically die because we've inherited that death and that guilt. So Adam was our representative. What he did in the garden was our sin. His sin was our sin. His trespass was our trespass. And it had dramatic impact upon us. That's why Paul can say in Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Adam plunged all of us into spiritual death, depravity, rebellion. Now, you may think that once Adam sinned, God was done with him. Okay, I'm done with this human race thing. We're just gonna, we're gonna stop right there. But God is not done. God gives mercy and grace to Adam and Eve. As a matter of fact, we see the very first promise in the Bible 
in Genesis 3.15. Genesis 3.15 is a pronouncement to the devil, the serpent, as to what God is going to do. What does God say to the serpent? Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity, that's warfare, that's hostility. I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, and between your offspring and her offspring. And he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Okay. Satan wanted to be on top. What does God do? You're going to be on bottom. You're going to be trampled underfoot by this deliverer that's going to come. This, this human, this man, this Messiah that's going to come from the seed of a woman, this deliverer, this Messiah is going to come, and he's going to crush your head, Satan. This is the very first announcement of the gospel in the Bible, Genesis 3.15. A Messiah will come. It won't be an animal. It won't be an angel. It will be from the offspring of a woman. And so from Eve, Adam and Eve, begin the offspring, begin this lineage of one day there's going to be the fulfillment of that. So how did Jesus fulfill the promise made to Adam? Okay, so Adam is being told, from you and Eve are going to come a Messiah that's going to crush Satan's head. Okay, so how did Jesus fulfill that? Well, Jesus left the glories of heaven and he was born of a woman. Galatians 4, 4 through 5. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus was born at just the right time through the lineage that started all the way back with Adam and Eve to that right time in history when God ordained for Jesus to be born. And what is Jesus going to do? Romans 16, 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. On the cross, Jesus crushed Satan. Satan was nipping at his heels, but Jesus ultimately crushed him on the cross. Now, back in Genesis 3.21, after God makes this pronouncement to Adam and Eve that they're going to have a, a Messiah come through their lineage, what does God do in Genesis 3.21? The Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skin and clothed them. How did God clothe them? What did he have to do? He had to kill an animal. God killed an animal to show that the shedding of blood would cover over sin. And God covered Adam and Eve's nakedness by killing an animal as a picture of Jesus being the one that would be killed to cover our sins. So how does this promised fulfillment impact you? How does it impact you today? Well, you're saved from spiritual death. You're saved from Satan. You're saved from the bonds of sin through Jesus, the better Adam, the second Adam. Romans 5, 17 through 18. For if because of one man's trespass, that's Adam, death reigned through one man, much more will those receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness and life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. Through Adam, we all receive death and guilt. Through Jesus, we receive grace upon grace. We receive the forgiveness of sins. We receive that right standing before God. 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. We've died spiritually in Adam, but through Christ we will live eternally through Jesus. So, promise fulfillment. 
traced all the way back to Adam. Okay, let's talk about Abraham. Because Abraham's in Jesus' family tree. How did Abraham sin? He lied twice about his wife, Sarah, being his sister, because he was afraid of the king. And then he was impatient because God had promised him a child, and he's getting way up in age. And so he says, let's kind of speed this thing along. And so he gets an Egyptian slave girl and has her become a surrogate mother to Ishmael. So Abraham was a liar, and he was impatient. Father Abraham had many sons. He, he, was, this, he was a liar. He was impatient. He was a sinner. But what promise did God make to Abraham? So promise fulfillment. What promise did God make to this sinner? Adam was a sinner. God made him a promise. Abraham was a sinner. What promise did he make to Abraham? Genesis 12, 2-3. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And in him who dishonors you, I will curse. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you. All the families of the earth will be blessed in Abraham. He will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. He'll be a great nation. Genesis 15, 5, the Lord brought him outside and said, look toward the heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. Then he said, so shall your offspring be. Abraham's going to have offspring as numerous as the stars in the sky. And then in Genesis, Genesis 17, 6, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. I will make you into a nation and kings shall come from you. Abraham, you're going to be a great nation. Abraham, you're going to be a blessing to the nations. Abraham, you're going to have numerous offspring. And Abraham, from your loins are going to come kings. It's a promise made to Abraham. Okay, how was that fulfilled in Jesus? What did God promise Abraham? Offspring, right? Numerous children. But who was the greatest offspring of Abraham? Who's in the family tree? Who's in the lineage? Jesus. Listen to how Paul says it in Galatians 3.16. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, plural, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring who is Christ. Christ is the offspring of Abraham. So how does that impact us? What's your connection, what, what's your connection to Abraham? Abraham has children and there are children of Abraham by faith. Not physical descendants, but spiritual descendants. Paul says in Galatians 3, 7, we know or know that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. So because of God's promise to Abraham and Jesus fulfilling that promise, how does it impact you today? Well, you can be adopted into God's family. You can be a spiritual heir to the family. You can be in God's family by faith through what Abraham did in his lineage to bring about Christ. So you got Abraham, trace it all the way back to Adam. Okay, who's Abraham's grandson? Jacob. Jacob's in the family tree. Okay, verse 34, the son of Jacob. Let's talk about Jacob. Anybody know what Jacob's name means? Heel grabber, grasper, manipulator, shyster, liar, con man. Jacob is the ultimate con man. Every time you turn around in the book of Genesis, he's cheating somebody out of something. He's cheating Esau twice. He cheats his uncle Laban. He is a cheat. He's a master manipulator. But yet, what does God promise Jacob, this master manipulator? 
Genesis 28, 14. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Same promise given to Abraham. It's given to Jacob. Okay. Now, I don't have time. This is a whole other sermon. But there's one night where Jacob is asleep. And he begins to wrestle with the angel of the Lord. There's a wrestling match going on all night. And the angel of the Lord touches Jacob's hip and, and basically wounds him. And Jacob walks with a limp. And, and the angel of the Lord changes Jacob's name and says, Your name is no longer shyster. <laughs> your name's no longer deceiver or manipulator. I'm giving you a new name. What's your new name? Israel. Israel. So Jacob's name was changed from manipulator to Israel, the nation of God. So it gives us hope that we too can be saved from our pride, our ambition, only through Jesus, the true Israel of God, can we have forgiveness. Do you know what God does when he saves you? He changes your name. You go from being spiritually dead, wicked sinner, separated from God, and God changes your name to precious child of the Lord. You become a new identity. Your name is changed. The way that God changed Jacob's name. And, it, and God changed Jacob's name to Israel. Who's the true Israel of God? Jesus is the true Israel of God. Remember when Gabriel, we, we looked at this a few weeks ago, when Gabriel the angel appeared to Mary, what did he say about Jesus in Luke 1, 32-33? Talking about Jesus, he will be great, and he will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Adam, Abraham, Jacob. Let's talk about somebody you may not know as much about. Let's talk about Judah. Judah, there in verse 33. The son of Judah. Judah is Jacob's fourth born son. Now what do you guys know about Judah? Judah was a human trafficker. You're like, what? You remember when they were going to sell Joseph into slavery? Who was the one that suggested they sell Joseph, their little brother, into slavery? It was Judah. He was a slave trader. He sold his little brother into slavery. And we find out later on in Genesis chapter 38, Judah liked prostitutes. He slept with a Canaanite prostitute, and she bore him many illegitimate sons. And then his daughter-in-law, Tamar, dresses up like a prostitute tricks her father-in-law, Judah, into sleeping with her. And then when he finds out this whole thing, he wants to burn her at the stake until she, he finds out that she's pregnant with his twins. And one of those twins' names is Perez. Look at your Bible there. Look at verse 33, backwards. The son of Judah, the son of Perez. Did you know that in Jesus' family tree, there's a illegitimate son by a prostitute in Jesus' family tree? Does that shock you? These are major sinners in the Old Testament who are part of Jesus' family tree. And God gave all of them promises, and they were fulfilled in Jesus. So what promise did God make to Judah? Judah. Genesis 49, 8 through 10. Judah, 
Your brother shall praise you. Your hands shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you've gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness who dares rouse him. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be obedience of all the people. Judah will be a lion. He will be a lion that will rule like a king. The scepter will never depart from the house of Judah, the lion. How does the book of Revelation describe Jesus? In the throne room of heaven, Revelation 5.5, one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open its scrolls and its seven seals. Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah who has conquered sin, death, the devil, and has risen again to give us victory. Coming all the way from a man who had sex with a prostitute and born an illegitimate son named Perez. And if you think that's bad enough, this sounds like a soap opera. Welcome to the world of the Old Testament. Let's talk about David. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. Pretty much stole, stole Uriah's wife. He lied about it, tried to cover it up, and then he tried to get Uriah drunk so that he would go in and sleep with his wife, and Uriah decided not to do that because it wouldn't be the noble thing to do. David gets mad and says, okay, we're just going to have to kill him one way or the other. So sends him out to the front of the troops, and everybody pulls back. And so David has Uriah murdered. Two huge sins that David commits, adultery and murder. And do you realize, according to the Old Testament law, David should have been killed, stoned to death for that. Those two things deserve the death penalty. David should have been stoned for those two sins. And you may say, well, why didn't God mete out punishment on David back then? Because it was God's will that through David, there would be a dynasty of kings on the throne. So what did God promise David, this adulterer, this murderer? 2 Samuel seven sixteen. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God says to David, you're going to have someone on the throne forever. You're going to have a true son. Now, look at, the, look at the lineage here for a moment. In verse 31, who do they put as the son of David? You have to kind of read backwards in this. Nathan. Now, you may say, well, how come Solomon's not in there? Well, if you go to Matthew's genealogy, you see that Solomon is in there. And you're like, okay, wait a minute. What's the difference between... Matthew's got different names and then... Luke's got different names. Why are there different names in Jesus' genealogy? Is this a discrepancy? There's a lot of scholarship, and you can do a lot of reading, but let me just boil it down to where most conservative evangelicals land. Most scholars believe that Luke's genealogy from David to Jesus focuses on Mary's family tree. Matthew's genealogy from David to Jesus focuses on Joseph's family tree. So if you think about it, Mary and Joseph were distant relatives, probably distant cousins, which was not uncommon back then because they both were related to David. Mary was related to David. Joseph was related to David. Now, what does that tell you about Jesus? He has a double claim to the throne of David. 
through both the line of Mary and the line of Joseph. So how is this promise made fulfilled in Jesus that was given to David? Well, again, let's go back and read what I read. Gabriel the angel spoke this, and, and it was talking about Jacob just a moment ago, but let's just read it again. Luke 1, 32-33, He will be great, He will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him, that's Jesus, the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and as his kingdom there will be no end. Jesus will rule in the throne of his father David. And then when Peter's preaching at Pentecost and he's speaking about Jesus and he's comparing Jesus to David, he says in, in Acts 2, <clears throat> 34 through 36, for David did not ascend into heavens, but himself said, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Jesus is the true king of Israel. So I want you to think about this family tree, going all the way back to Adam. Adam failed the test, but Jesus is the one who obeyed perfectly. Jesus is the better Adam. Abraham lied and was impatient, but Jesus was pure and the one who patiently endured the cross. Jesus is the better Abraham. Jacob was a master manipulator who tried to climb his way to the top. Jesus never tried to climb his way to the top, but came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the better Jacob. Judah was the human trafficker who had sex with prostitutes and born illegitimate children. Jesus is the pure, spotless Lamb of God that never once sinned, but was perfect in every way. Jesus is the better Judah. He's the lion of the tribe of Judah. David was an adulterer and murderer, but he served as the greatest king of Israel. Jesus is the greatest king to ever live, and he's the one that conquered the grave. He is the better David. What this genealogy shows us, as you trace it from Adam to Jesus, is that Jesus is the true king. He is the true king. Adam was a king, if you will, that was placed in the garden to extend God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. He failed and got kicked out. God promised to Abraham through his lineage would come kings. Promised it to Jacob, promised it to Judah, came through in David. All those kings failed. All those kings sinned. Every human, from every human on this list, from Adam all the way up to Joseph, failed, sinned, never lived up to the standard of God. Except for Jesus who came born of a virgin, fully God, fully man, but who is the king of the kingdom. So how do you respond to the king of the kingdom? Jesus is the king of the kingdom, whether you like it or not, whether you know it or not. He has a kingdom and he's king. And what does he say? What were the, some of the very first words out of Jesus' mouth when he came preaching? In Mark 1, 14 through 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. Okay, the kingdom of God is at hand. What are we supposed to do? Repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom's at hand. 
You've heard the kingdom announced this morning. You've been introduced to the king. There's a king named Jesus. The kingdom is at hand. What do you do with the king when he comes? You repent and you believe the gospel. You turn from your sin and you turn toward Jesus and you submit yourself to the king. Romans 10, 13 says, Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called upon the name of Jesus to be saved? 1 John 5, 11 through 13. This is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this is, life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. <coughs> Excuse me. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Now, that's very clear. Do you know that you have eternal life? Jesus says, I write these things that you may know that you have eternal life. Who has eternal life? Those who have the Son. If you don't have the Son, you don't have eternal life. Do you have Jesus as your king? Have you repented and believed in Jesus as your king? Have you called upon the name of Jesus as your king? Because as it was read earlier, Revelation eleven fifteen, the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. It started in a garden in Adam, the failed king who did not reign forever and ever but was kicked out. And it goes from Genesis all the way to Revelation where King Jesus will come back. And how does the book of Revelation describe the king who's coming back? The king that came from the lineage of Jacob and came from Abraham and came from Judah and came from David all the way back to Adam. How does John describe the coming of the king in Revelation? Revelation 19, 11 through 16. Then I saw heaven open and behold a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like the flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. That's just a word for crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he's called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has the name written... King of kings and Lord of lords. Is this the Jesus you serve? Is this the Jesus you love? He's the king. The absolute king. Let us all bow down and worship him alone. Let me ask you to bow your heads this morning. Father, as we gather before you in this place, we see a very clear picture from your word, from Genesis to Revelation, a unified story of your plan of salvation. Started in a garden with Adam, 
and the tree of life that was forfeited and it will end in heaven where we will have access to the tree of life forever and ever because Jesus, you're the king. You're the coming king. You're the lion of the tribe of Judah. You're the king on David's throne. You're the one through whom all the nations on earth are blessed. You're our Savior and our Lord. What we need to do this week, Lord, is just to bow before your sovereignty, to bow before your kingship. Lord, we don't, we don't want a king because we want to be in control. We don't want a king because we want to call the shots. We don't want a king because we don't want to have to change or repent. Lord, ultimately, we want to be the kings of our lives. We want to be on the throne. So would this week, would we take our eyes off ourselves as king, as pitiful as that is, and would we look to the true king, the coming king, the ruling king, the loving king, Jesus. May our hearts be warmed this week, Lord, for your glory. May we keep our eyes fixed on you as we serve you, as we love you, as we obey you as our king. And we ask this in the king's name, that strong name of Jesus. Amen and amen.